I'd encourage you to grab a Bible if you don't have one. Uh, I sometimes have the Bible passages coming up on the slides behind me. That's not going to happen tonight because uh, the original audience of Moses would have known the places that you just heard about and they wouldn't have really needed a map. I suspect that most of you are listening to those names and places thinking, what the heck? Um, so I'm just going to probably put up some maps from time to time and as I preach, it'll just make for a good sort of reference point as we go. Um, there is an outline in the um, news sheet that you got at the door that might help you, um, but yeah, Bibles are probably the thing you most need because there'll be a bit of flicking that happens from time to time. Let's pray as we look at Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is a long passage, uh, but Father, the truths in, these passage, in this passage uh, are vital for us to know. They tell us about you. So, Father, please use me in my weakness uh, to preach uh, these two chapters clearly and faithfully. And I pray that we'd all leave here with a bigger uh, view of who you are and why it's so good to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, to trust or not to trust, that is the question my Year 7 teacher a Sunday school teacher asked us during a Sunday school lesson that I've never really forgotten. I remember it clearly. She got the whiteboard out from the cupboard, she grabbed a marker, and she drew like a crossroads, something like that. You kids are growing up, she said. You're in high school now. There are going to be new pressures, new challenges, new temptations to stop living God's way. You need to choose whether you're going to keep trusting in God's promises and live his way, or whether you'll walk away from him and live your own way. Crossroads. And it was clear in this Sunday school lesson that this teacher desperately wanted us to keep making the choice to trust God. You see, as we all knew, she herself had, desperate, had known the grief of watching one of her own sons, who was much older than us, Choose the path away from God. Many times in Sunday school she would speak of the sadness of watching her son walk away from God and his promises of forgiveness and eternal life to live his own way. Most weeks she would be praying for her son in our prayer time, pleading with God to show him mercy. You see, she was a teacher, a leader who had seen the tragedy of unbelief and desperately wanted to see this next generation not go down that path. Well, in our passage tonight, something similar is going on. Moses, the leader, the teacher of Israel, is also someone who has seen and witnessed the tragedy of unbelief in one generation and desperately appeals to this next generation to avoid that same mistake. Last week, you might remember, we heard Moses reminding this new generation of Israelites of the unbelief of their parents 40 years earlier. Despite what that generation had seen in their exodus from Egypt, they refused to trust God when he told them to enter into the promised land and take possession of it. Instead, what did they do? Well, they caved in fear when they heard the reports, remember, of those big, strong, and scary people living in the Promised Land. Remember their objection? 
they are too big for us. They are too strong for us. There are too many of them. Their walls are too high for us. Instead of saying, the Lord is with us and we'll go, they actually said, chapter 127, the Lord hates us and we're staying put. See, Israel's failure to go down the path of trust Israel's failure to go down the path of trust brought judgment upon them. They were condemned to wander around the desert for the next 40 years, that generation, until every last member of it had died out. Moses is desperate here not to see this generation, this new generation, make the same mistake. He wants them to trust God and take possession of that promised land. But you see, for this to happen, Moses knows that they have to be convinced about who God is. They have to be convinced of his great faithfulness to them and his great power to bring them victory. And really, they're the two big points that I think mark out these two big chapters before us. God's faithfulness and God's power as a basis for Israel's continuing trust into the promised land. And see, I suspect there may be some of us here tonight feeling like we're actually at a bit of a crossroads in our faith. Maybe things are hard. Maybe you've got some doubts about God. Maybe you actually wonder whether it's worth continuing to trust God and live his way. Well, let us all look at the picture of God given to us here in Moses' words to Israel, because that is who our God is today. So first, God's great faithfulness. Uh, If Israel is going to trust God and do what he says, they need to be confident that he's committed to them. And that makes sense, right? You, You don't just entrust yourself to anybody. I think about marriage, for example. Despite what you see on Married at First Sight, most of us want to entrust ourselves in marriage to someone who has a history of faithfulness. See, when I married Ruth, I did so with confidence because I had seen her kindness and her generosity to others throughout the years, but I had also experienced her kindness and her generosity. Uh, In chapter 2, Moses reminds the Israelites of two ways in which they've experienced evidence of God's faithfulness during their journey to the Promised Land. First, they had seen it uh, in God's dealings with them over the past 40 years, keeping them safe. But second, they had seen God's faithfulness uh, in the three nations that he makes them walk past on the last leg of their journey. They'd seen it with themselves, but they'd seen evidence of it with other peoples. So first, they'd seen evidence of it with themselves. Moses reminds them how faithful God has been to them during their 40 long years in the desert. See, look at verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He has watched over your journey through this vast desert. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. 
Now just keep your finger on that page and flip across to the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verses 5 and 6, and look at what God says there. God says, During the 40 years that I led you through the desert, your clothes did not wear out, nor the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. Moses is reminding the Israelites, were you ever hungry? No. Or were you ever thirsty? No. Were you ever cold or walking around that desert barefoot? No. Why? Well, it's because God cared for you. He was committed to you. He was looking after you. See, sometimes we think of the God of the Old Testament as harsh and cruel, but that's not the picture we get here, is it? I mean, just think about God's provision, you know. I was thinking about this. I buy a new T-shirt, right? And only after a few washes, it already starts to go a bit wonky and lose a bit of colour. You might buy a pair of shoes, and already after a year, look, shoelaces are wearing out, the soles are a bit dodgy, you need to buy another pair. Well, three and a half thousand years ago, these people, God's people, were still wearing the same coats and sandals they were four decades earlier. See, many in this generation, this new generation, they may not have experienced that glorious exodus from Egypt, but Moses taps into something that they had experienced firsthand, God's grace and faithfulness to them in providing for their needs in the desert. But secondly, uh, the Israelites were also able to see the evidence of God's faithfulness in three of the nations that God make them, made them walk past in the final stages of their journey to the Promised Land, the kingdom of Edom, Orange, Moab, Purple, Ammon. What do we got? Sorry, Edom, Yellow, Moab, Purple, Ammon, Orange. Now, at first, in Chapter 2, all the names and places that you heard Bell speak of they all kind of feel just overwhelming. It did for me when I first read uh, chapter 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy. But here's the basic message that God gives to Israel as they pass by each one of those nations. Look, but don't touch. Look at how I've kept my word to give land to these distant relatives of yours, but don't touch that land because it's theirs, not yours. What I give to people, I give to them alone. So first, Israel's journey past the nation of Edom, that yellow one down the bottom. So you look at God's command regarding the Edomites, the descendants of Esau in verses 4 to 6. Give the people these orders. You're about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. You are to pay them in silver for the food you eat and for the water you drink. Hear what God is saying? I have graciously given that land to the sentence of Esau. So look, but don't think you can touch. And it's the same thing as they journey past the land of Moab, isn't it? The descendants of Lot, who was the nephew of Abraham. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war. 
for I will not give you any part of their land. I have given Ah, that region, to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Again, look, but don't touch. And again, we see the same thing with the Ammonites, the, the other people group descending from Lot. The orange uh, area up the top, look at verse 19 in your Bibles. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any of the land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. Again, look, but don't touch. See, the lands of Edom, Moab, and Ammon were the gifts of a gracious and faithful God. And did you notice what God had to actually do to keep his word to those nations? I mean, their ancestors didn't just walk into vacant plots when they took possession of their allotted areas. No, no, no. This passage is actually telling us in two historical comments placed in brackets in verses 10 and 12, uh, and again in verses 20 and 23, they might be in brackets in your Bibles too, that God actually had to drive out giants to make those promises uh, come true for those people. See, about the land of Ammon, we read in verses 20 to 22, well, that too was considered a land of Rephaites who used to live there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumites. They were a people, strong and numerous, and as tall as the Anakites. The Lord destroyed them from the, before the Ammonites, who drove them out and settled in their place. The Lord had done the same for the descendants of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They drove them out and have lived in their place to this day. Did you catch that before? Long before there was a David and Goliath, God was defeating giants and conquering powerful enemies in the process of keeping his word to those people groups. See, God takes Israel past these nations to actually strengthen their trust in him. Israel is to look at those nations as they walk by on their way to the promised land and think, man, if God keeps his promise to them, why should we doubt that he won't keep it with us? So the promises he gave to our father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In reminding his audience of God's faithfulness to them in both the desert and his faithfulness to them in, in the evidence of Edom, Moab, and Ammon, Moses shows the Israelites that God is committed to them he cares about them. He is faithful to the promise to give them land, just as he had graciously given land to those other nations. Their God, who is our God, is faithful. But second, God, God's great power. See, if Israel is going to trust God, if, if we are going to trust God and live his way, then they and we need to be confident of his great power to give them and we what we most need. Israel needed to know that God had the power to destroy those intimidating and numerous people on the other side of the Jordan River in the Promised Land. And so Moses reminds them in this part of his sermon how God had given them victory over two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. 
Sihon's kingdom is just to the left of Ammon. Og's kingdom was to the north. The Israelites had trusted God in the face of terrifying enemies, and it actually paid off big time. Let's see how. First King Sihon, what does God say about him? Look at verse 24. God says to his people, Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given, uh, given into your hands Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. This time, says God, I want you to look and I want you to touch. I'm giving this land to you. Go, fight, take possession. That's what they do, isn't it? Moses offers Sihon peace, asking to pass through safely. Sihon refuses because God hardens his heart, verse 30. We're then told that Sihon mobilizes his entire armed forces against the people of Israel on the border. I mean, this king has come to wipe Israel off the map. Yet Israel, in great trust, engages that massive force in battle, and, and without any explanation of how, the next verse, 33, simply reads, The Lord our God delivered him over to us, and we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. At that time we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Now, I'll just pause there for a minute because I know the idea of women and children particularly, men we don't care too much about, um, but the idea of women and children being swept away in God's judgment uh, is often confronting to us. Uh, I'm going to leave the big discussions surrounding that until Deuteronomy chapter 7, which deals specifically with that practice uh, of the conquest. But I will just briefly note uh, at this point that that practice of total destruction was given by God only for a time in Israel's history, only in a specific place of the Promised Land, and for a, a particular purpose, which included judgment on wicked nations and the protection of Israel's relationship with her God. But I'll talk more about that when we get there in Deuteronomy chapter 7, because it's a big discussion. But the big idea at this point in Deuteronomy, however, is squarely focused on God's power to deliver on his promises to Israel in the face of great enemies and obstacles. And so that's why we read again in verse 36, notice, not one town was too strong for us. The Lord gave us all of them. But God's not finished showing his power to, to Israel, is he? Look at what he does to the next enemy, to the north to the kingdom of Og, that giant of Bashan. In chapter 3, 1 to 2, Israel acts in faith again. They engage the forces of King Og in battle, and again God gives them complete victory over Og's entire kingdom. And did you notice the way that Moses is at pains to remind them of what they were up against in that battle? Verse 5, all these cities were fortified with high walls and with gates and bars. And it wasn't just their city walls that were high and tall, was it? It was actually their king as well, Og, our old mate Og. He was a man of giant height. I mean, just look at that 
other historical comment that we are given about Og and his bed in verse 11 at first read is a little bit odd. Well, look at it with me. Og, king of Bashan, was the last of the Rephaites. That's that giant race of people. His bed was decorated with iron and was more than nine cubits long and four cubits wide. It is still in rubber of the Ammonites. Uh, we've taken the kids uh, to the Melbourne Museum a few times, and every time I go, I like to show them Ned Kelly's armour. I mean, just imagine squaring off against that bloke with his guns and his armour and the mask. I mean, it just would have been pretty intimidating, I think. But the police ended up taking him down, didn't they? A couple of bullets in the legs seemed to do the trick, and then they hanged him and put his armour on display for all to see that the law won the day. They were powerful to beat that bushranger. Well, Og's bird likewise stood as a mo monument to a great defeat. See, to look at Og's bed was to remember that a giant had been defeated. The fortresses were overcome, the armies had been wiped out. See, it's not hard to think about the field, to let uh, that previous generation's words ring back in our mind at this point. How can we go up against them? They are too big, they're too strong, they're too many. But you see, future generation of Israelites uh, ever thought that way? Well, they're being told in verse 11 that they should just make a trip down to Ammon, to Rubber walk into the museum there and take a look at Og's big bed, which is on display. Four metres by about 1.8 metres. Imagine changing the sheets on that bad boy. They want to look at it and think, God is powerful. He takes down giants. He is worth trusting. See, the fear of that generation had prevailed the fear of that first generation had prevailed over faith. But the faith of this next generation, we see, prevails over fear. And what had changed was not the threat, but the people's trust in their powerful God. Uh, Moses is reminding Israel that their recent trust in God's power had paid off big time. God had given them victory, just as he said he would. But more than that, Israel had now had a taste of what it felt like to receive land. In verses 12 to 20, we see the half-tribe of Manasseh, the tribes of Reuben and Gad, uh, given this conquered land as a gift by God. That's them on the right-hand side of the promised land. And we know in Numbers that these tribes had requested this land and that God had allowed it even though it technically wasn't part of the promised land. Uh, God says that they can go in in verses 18 to 20, but the fighting men of those tribes, they can't just rest there for the time being. They're to cross over with their brother Israelites and fight until all Israel experiences the goodness of land. Uh, Israel had begun to possess land at this point. Now just think for a moment how sweet that would have felt for them. For 40 years, you've known nothing 
but desert wanderings, living in those little tents. But now, at least three tribes, you've got grazy, grassy plains to graze your stock. You've actually got land to build solid houses on. I mean, I've never experienced owning my own home. Uh, Bible College sought that out. Uh, but I imagine that must feel sweet. You know, nailing a hook into the wall without fear of the landlord coming and getting angry, knowing that you have an investment to pass on to your kids one day. Just imagine how much more excited Israel would have felt at this moment. Israel had relied on God's faithfulness and power, and they had begun to experience the blessings of trust. All of this is a foretaste of what God will continue to do for them if they just keep trusting and do what he says. Moses is reminding them of God's great power and provision so that they will cross boldly over that Jordan River, fight the enemy with the same trust and experience the fullness of God's blessing in the entire promised land. Third point. Israel's call to keep trusting. Moses has been saying to the people throughout these chapters, look at God's great faithfulness to you in your desert journeys. Look at God's great power to bring you victory over your enemies. Now you're on the footstep of the promised land now. Don't blow it. Don't stop trusting in God now. Don't be afraid of what's over that Jordan River because God will take care of it. He'll look after you. Look at how, he re, uh, how Moses reminds them of this uh, as he recounts his words to Joshua. Chapter 321, At that time I commanded Joshua, You have seen with your own eyes all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. The Lord will do the same to all the kingdoms over there where you're going. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. See, it's so, so easy for us to forget past faithfulness and descend into present fear. <clears throat> I actually get a picture of this most mornings in our household. Almost without exception, Camille, our eldest daughter, will be worrying that she is late for school. Dad, I don't want to be late for school. Are we going to be late for school? Have you had your breakfast yet? Why, why aren't you moving faster? And every morning I have to reassure Cammie, have I ever made you late for class yet? Or there's this one time? No. Um, have I ever failed you getting you to school? No. So no need to worry. You'll be fine, sweetie. And it's the same with God. If Israel and we are going to keep trusting God, we need to always be looking back on his great faithfulness and great power to bring about his great promises. Past faithfulness gives us present hope. Uh, but the fourth point on my outline highlights the sad note uh, that our passage ends on. Moses being denied entry to the promised land. I mean, 
it's kind of hard to read this last part of our passage in verses 23 to 29 without feeling a deep sense of pity for Moses. I mean, he made it so far, he'd put up with so much from these people. Does he really have to miss out on the promised land now? I mean, if you read Numbers 20, where you see the incident that gets Moses into trouble and barred from the promised land, you might not actually think it's that bad. I mean, there we read of Israel angrily demanding water, frustrating Moses. God tells Moses to speak to a rock so that water will come out for them. But what does Moses do? He snaps, gets angry at them, and he actually whacks that rock twice with his staff. And again, I suspect many of us might think, well, it seems like a pretty small act of disobedience. God said, speak. He thought, whack. Can't God just turn a bit of a blind eye to that little slip-up? And Moses sure would have liked God to let him off the hook, wouldn't he? I mean, look at what he says in verses 23 to 25. At that time, I pleaded with God. Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show to your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do? Let me go over and see the good lands beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country in Lebanon. Please don't do this to me, Lord. It was really Israel's fault, not mine. Notice that in chapters 1 to 4, three times, Moses says, because of you, I wasn't allowed in. We see that now in our passage tonight, chapter 3, 26. Now, we might think of Moses' sin as minor, but look at actually how God sees that incident. If you flip again across to chapter 33, verse 51, this is how God sees that same incident. Speaking of Aaron and Moses in their role in, in that act of disobedience, God says that they were barred from the promised land. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. See, Moses had been told to do one thing by God, but he chose to do another. See, we might look at our acts of disobedience and our sin as minor with rose-colored glasses, but God doesn't. To reject God is no small matter. The first generation of Israel had to discover that painfully too, didn't they? Both they and Moses were never able to see that wonderful promised land. See, Moses' sad example actually stands as evidence that God takes rejection, all forms of rejection, of him and his word seriously. To trust him is to receive great blessing, but to reject God is to miss out on his great promise if we do not change. Uh, Israel's journey through the wilderness and their victory over great enemies reminds us that we have a faithful and powerful God who loves his people and keeps his promises. And in the next book of the Bible, Joshua, uh, we'll see how God was actually faithful to those promises. He brings his people into the land and conquers all those powerful peoples. 
But actually, as the story of the Bible continues on, we, we actually see how the faithlessness of that first generation never actually leaves God's people. See, time and time again throughout Israel's history from this point, they forget God's faithfulness and his power. They reject him and they, and they suffer the consequences and they're eventually kicked out of that promised land, deported to Babylon. And see, what all of that actually shows us is that the real enemy is not so much the giants of the promised land, but the sinfulness of the human heart. That's actually what needs to be dealt with. And the Bible tells us that's present in all of us. And that's why what God does for us in sending his son Jesus is so good. In fact, it's the ultimate act of God's faithfulness and power to give us what we truly need. New and forgiven hearts. And the promises of a dwelling place with God that will be never taken from us. Jesus, we see, takes our punishment of death on the cross, dealing with our sin. And in raising Jesus from the dead, God makes it clear that those who trust in Jesus will likewise be raised to eternal life with God in heaven. This is how the Apostle Peter speaks of God's faithfulness and his power to us in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. See, if you're not yet a Christian, let me encourage you tonight to put your trust in Jesus. He is faithful to you. Dying for your sin to make you right with God. He is powerful, raising, uh, being risen from the dead and thereby defeating your greatest enemy of death. You know, just think back to that excitement of Israel starting to possess the land in chapter 3. Well, that excitement has nothing on the joy of possessing Christ through faith with the knowledge that you will one day experience the, experience the blessing not just of land, but of your heavenly inheritance. But you see, for those of us who are trusting Jesus, followers of him, the journey to that heavenly promise, that heavenly dwelling, can often feel like somewhat of a long and painful one. Like the first generation of Israelites, we can let the fears, the great obstacles that we come across, actually strangle and suffocate our trust. Like I said at the start of the sermon, some of you may be feeling that you're at a bit of a crossroads in your own Christian walk. Well, just let me finish by offering three reasons to keep trusting God and his son Jesus tonight. Firstly, our faithful Lord cares about us. See, sometimes what hinders our trust is fear that God doesn't actually love us that much. He doesn't really care too much about us. And you see, if we think that he keeps us at arm's length, we'll generally keep him at arm's length too. I've actually heard this time and time again over the years of catching up for coffees and stuff. 
But people are just not sure whether God actually cares about them that much. And it can be tempting to, to, uh, to fear God's abandonment, to let that fear get a foothold in life. You know, I've made too much of a mess of my life. How can God love me? Nothing seems to be working out. I feel like God hates me. Why don't I feel the presence of God in my life like that other Christian does? See, this the first generation, you might recall, of Israel made the mistake of thinking that God hated them, remember? But what have we seen of God's care for his people in our passage tonight? Well, that reminds us that he does love his people. He is committed to them. He cares for them. We're told that he sends his son who dies for us while we were still sinners, not when we had got our life together. And he continues to look after us. Now, the Apostle Peter says again in the passage up on the screen, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. But secondly, a powerful Lord fights for us. Sometimes what hinders our trust is the fear uh, that these giant trials we face will crush us, will overwhelm us. Again, it was this fear that led the first generation to stop trusting God altogether. Some things do just feel beyond us. We ask ourselves, how will I make it through this? How can I keep trusting God? In the face of all of this, you know, the prospect of joblessness scares us. The prospect of a life of singleness or childness might scare us. The prospect of uh, losing our health or someone close to us dying, that's scary. For me, you know, I I sometimes worry, how could I cope Uh, if I lost one of my kids? Or if I was diagnosed with a terminal illness? How could I get through that? I'd be overwhelmed, wouldn't I? You see, we fear being crushed by these things. But what does our passage remind us of tonight in the face of fear? What is God saying to the Israelites? Do not be afraid. The Lord himself will fight for you. See, it was true for the Israelites when they faced down giants. How much more can we rely on that promise now when we have the Lord Jesus working powerfully within us? See, note the ways, well, we need to note the ways that God has already sustained us through his powerful presence. And God will continue to give us the grace we need to keep trusting him and stand in the face of those trials. See, remember what Paul said amidst his struggle with the thorn in his flesh, which we don't quite know what that was. But he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Our powerful Saviour will sustain us. But thirdly, 
a wonderful promise awaits us. See, sometimes what hinders our trust in Jesus is actually the fear of missing out, FOMO. Uh, We look at all the pleasures of the world, the freedoms uh, that other people seem to enjoy, who are not followers of Jesus, and think, I wish I could do that. Why do I have to miss out on the good life? See, we have FOMO of the good life. We think that it exists sometimes outside of following Jesus. But Moses' example, you might note, at the end of our passage, reminds us that the FOMO we really ought to have regards for is concerns the promises of God. We don't want to miss out on them. You see, Moses, you might recall, he was devastated that he couldn't experience the blessing of that good land. Don't let that be you with heaven. Don't trade Jesus for some fleeting pleasure of earth. Uh, This sometimes I know is a challenge for high school students or uni students, but I think it just remains true for all of us. Heaven will be awesome. I had a coffee with a guy a few days ago who wanted to know all about heaven. And I actually realised I don't speak much about heaven. But I was just really encouraged after that conversation, thinking about heaven. We went to Revelation 21, verse 4, which kind of gives us uh, the feel of what heaven's like. He will wipe every tear away, uh, every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's good, isn't it? A wonderful promise awaits us. Don't want to trade that in. Our faithful Lord cares for us. Our powerful Lord fights for us. His wonderful promise awaits us. And I was, just in closing as I wrap up, I was reminded last night, as I was thinking about this sermon, just how much we need to just keep coming back to God's faithfulness and his power just in the humdrum of life. Uh, Ruth has currently described our house as a place in which there is always one person at any given moment crying. Uh, Mostly it's the kids. Not always. Uh, Life is just a bit draining at the moment with a lot of little children. Not much sleep. It's uh, a little tough. And it was last night. There wasn't much sleep. There was a lot of crying. And as I was laying down next to one of my kids on the bed, trying to pat them better, I was actually just thinking how this passage applies right now into that moment. And I was thinking, you know what? Uh, Our family might be feeling a bit sleep-deprived, a bit stressed, but our faithful Lord cares for us. Uh, We might be feeling a bit overwhelmed, like things are a bit beyond us, no sleep, but our powerful Lord fights for us. He'll take us through it. And we might be groaning under the emotions, tears, but our faithful Lord's promise points us forward to that day where crying will be no more. Ah. Guys, let's keep trusting Jesus 
He is faithful. He is powerful. He will do what he has promised. Let's pray. Uh, if the band could come up too. Thanks. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great uh, promises we do have in the Lord Jesus, that you have sent him uh, to be a substitute for sin, to make us right with you, to give us that glorious promise of eternal life. Father, help us to remember his power, remember his faithfulness, and never stop trusting him. Amen.